morning and welcome to Grace Bible Church. Good morning. Uh, morning. (laughs) We have uh, made it to James chapter 4. We will return this morning to James chapter 4 verse 1 through 10 and specifically this morning we will be, uh, our study will be verses 7 uh, through 10. I'm just going to read those verses after I pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning again. We come to you and thank you for our opportunity to be together, to uh, gather here, Lord. And Father, I pray that we would be so thankful to you that we can be here this morning, that we're not uh, elsewhere, we're not doing things that uh, we shouldn't be doing, Lord, whatever sinful activity that might be, that you have in your sovereign kindness drawn us to be here, drawn us to be uh, a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. What a gift that that is. Grace, grace, God's grace that is greater than all our sin. We thank you this morning again in Christ's name. Amen. James chapter 4 verse 7, Submit therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and He will exalt you. I've titled my sermon this morning, What Must I Do to Be Saved? What must I do to be saved? James in this section shares six keys to the kingdom answering this crucial question. You must first submit to the king. Second, you must join the resistance. Third, you must draw near to the Lord. Fourth, you must forsake your sin. Fifth, you must Embrace your brokenness. And sixth, you must understand true exaltation. Well, this letter, as we have studied, was written by James, the half-brother of Jesus, to a struggling people in the diaspora, the, the scattered ones, if you will. These people had been scattered abroad because they are due to persecution. Now, James was, as we've learned, very concerned about their situation He was even concerned that they might fall away from following Christ. These people that he's writing to represent the first fruits of the church. They were the first wave of a great multitude which the Lord will save in the church age. You and I are sitting here because of their faithfulness. These people were struggling and seemed to have very little leadership among them. And many were trying to lead, many who were trying to lead were immature. And, and they, some of those may have been even unbelieving. The issues, or these issues, were leading to great trials among the brethren. Among the true brethren who had given up everything to follow Christ. So James, he began his letter by reminding these suffering Christians the, the purpose of their trials and suffering. He reminded them that God uses trials... God uses trials and suffering uh, for, for a purpose. 
He wants them to know that He uses the trials and, and suffering to make them more like Christ. He didn't want them to be divided in mind. He didn't want them to be double-minded. And He encouraged them early in chapter 1, He encouraged them to ask God for the wisdom that they needed to endure the trials that they were suffering through. He encouraged them to be faithful as they struggled, knowing that God would see them through. He even reminded them in chapter 1 verse 12 of the prize of of faithfulness to love God through these great difficulties. He says in James chapter 1 verse 12, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. And really, we dare not gloss over this great prize. This prize is our Christian hope. It's, it's what we hope for. This world that we live in is a, a difficult world. But we know that Christ will return. We know that He will make all things right. And He will exalt those who are His. Jesus Himself said in Matthew twenty three twelve, Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be what? Exalted. So it would seem that, that from James's letter that there were those who were wanting their best life now. They wanted to experience all the pleasures and comforts of, of the world, while at the same time they wanted to receive all the benefits of this future exaltation. But as my mother used to say, you can't have your cake and eat it too. So James not only writes to encourage these suffering Christians, but he writes to admonish the ones who are on the fence, the ones who are teetering, the ones who could go either way. He warns them that they need to commit to Christ, even if that commitment means that they must suffer. He tells them in James chapter 1, verse 21, Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted which is able to save your souls. Now I think that this verse is key. Because there, again, there were people in the church who were teetering. They were on the fence. They hadn't completely fallen away, but they were close. James wanted them to consider the commands of God's Word, and he wanted them to humbly submit to them. He knew that they were being drawn by the world. He knew that they were being drawn by the pleasures of the world. They, they were like that, that bug being drawn to the light, but the light, the light they were being drawn to was not the true light. It was a bug zapper. And like the bug zapper, the world will kill them with its deadly poison. You see, there, there were those in this church, in the church, who called themselves Christians. They were preaching a prosperity gospel, not unlike today's gospel that we hear, the prosperity gospel that is. They were preaching that you could be friends with the world and have worldly pleasures. Just yesterday, I was sent an article uh, which outlines this very issue in the, today's church. You see, in recent years, there have been megachurches that have been popping up all around the country. One of the most widely known is Hillsong, led by a man named Carl Lentz. These churches are attended by people like Justin Bieber, Kim Kardashian, Kanye West, and Selena Gomez. And according to these, this article, these stylish white evangelical pastors are leading a new religious organization in Hollywood which looks cool and casual. And everybody's wearing streetwear and waving their hands to Christian rock bands, but actually stems from the traditional Pentecostal movement. 
Listen to this. In each of these churches, there's a heavy focus on baptism, tithing. Most, most now have convenient iPhone apps for this purpose and the Bible. But then, listen to this. The article goes on to say, one thing that is totally okay in the eyes of the Lord, according to Hillsong, this is according to them, is the pursuit of cash, which makes the church especially friendly to celebrities. Pastors do not take a vow of poverty, and as such, they can lead lifestyles similar to the, to the pop stars they serve. Lentz has been see, seen wearing Saint Laurent and Louis Vuitton. I don't even know what those are, really, but I guess it's really expensive clothing. The point is, is that our culture is sliding headlong into this abyss. And these so-called pastors are going right along as they enjoy worldly pleasures. Even, even our culture sees right through their facade, though. According to that author, the author that wrote the article, these pastors have been questioned on their views of, uh, on marriage and uh, marriage equality and abortion. The cool pastors, though, prefer not to share their opinions on these, on these, on these issues. You see, the world will not allow them to enjoy their pleasures if they don't st- take a stand. Right? If they don't if they don't take a stand with the world, the world won't allow them to continue their facade. It won't it won't allow them to do this. They won't stand for it. But I'm telling you right now, our Lord will not allow them to remain in their comfort. They can't have it both ways. They will be forced to choose. Be friends with the Lord and with the world that is, or follow Christ. That's the choice. And Really, what we see here is that nothing has changed. Uh, the, and back in James, these people were holding or showing partiality to these rich landowners that, that were withholding wages from poor Christians who in turn were living hand to mouth. There were those in the church who were refusing to stand up to these rich folks, these rich landowners, even as they saw their brethren suffering. And it seems that these so-called brothers were unwilling to even stand up and get to them and give up their worldly pleasures. James warns them that they are violating the, the law of the kingdom. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He also warned them that their faith is a, a dead faith. Therefore, they, they cannot be saved if they're, therefore they're, they're, they cannot be saved if their works don't match their professed faith. In other words, They can't trust that they will receive the crown of life because they are utterly unwilling to suffer for the sake of Christ today. In James 4.1, James tells them that the source of all their quarrels among them is the pleasures that wage war in their members or in their flesh. They have great conflict among themselves because they are pursuing the, the pleasures of the flesh and don't want to give them up. He says in James 4, 2, You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. But that's the way it always is, right? When we're friends with the world. We can't be friends with the world and and be friends with God at the same time because that makes us adulteresses. And that's what James calls these people. He says, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility to God or toward God? Beloved, you can't have it both ways. You can't have it both ways. 
The question is, are, are we pursuing the world? Are you pursuing the world? You see, this is not just a problem with celebrity pastors catering to Justin Bieber. Listen to Matthew Henry. This is what he had to say. Those who have a saving interest in Christ must be willing to part with all for Him. Leave all to follow Him. Whatever stands in opposition to Christ or in competition with Him for our love and service, we must cheerfully quit it, though ever so dear to us. End quote. Must be willing to give those things up. Those things that are in competition with Him for our love and service. We must not only give them up begrudgingly, we need to cheerfully give them up. You might ask though, how do I know? How do I know that I'm that where I'm at with this? You know, I have a good job. Should I give that up? Beloved, it's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the heart. Where's your money going? If your check register were open for all to see, what would that say about you? What about your time? Well, what do you do with your days? Beloved, where we spend our money and our time always reveals what we value. Is your finances and your time invested in kingdom work? Or do you spend more time and resources pursuing other pleasures? What are your priorities? What are you investing in? See, James says... In, in James chapter 4, verse 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask with what? With wrong motives. That you may spend it on your pleasures. In other words, you're struggling because you're spending your time and money on the wrong pursuits. You're spending your life doing the wrong things. And you're asking God to replenish the coffers so that you can continue to pursue what the world has to offer. You see, Jesus Himself said in Matthew 6.31, Do not worry then, saying, What will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. Then He says this in Matthew 6.33, But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be what? To be added to you. In Matthew 6.34, then he says, So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has trouble of its own. You see, that last line is, is very interesting. We use that verse to say that we shouldn't worry about tomorrow because God will take care of us. And obviously that's true. But you've got you to understand that the people he's speaking to didn't have the wealth that we possess. Yet Jesus encouraged them to invest what they had in the kingdom of God first. They had very little. But Jesus was saying, invest that into the kingdom of God first because God will care for you. And when they do, they can trust that God will supply their every need. Beloved, if you're using your resources to pursue His kingdom and His righteousness, He will never cease to give you both. He will never cease to give you both the, the righteousness, His righteousness, and what you need to make it through the next day. But if you're hoarding your resources, or you're using them to pursue your own pleasures, then they, there will never be enough, no matter how much you have. 
Whatever, whether you hoard it or spend it on your pleasures, it doesn't matter. God wants it all or nothing. He's a jealous God who desires your full submission to Him. He wants your whole life, not just a Sunday visit to church. If that's what you're here for, if it's just a Sunday visit to church, that's not what He wants. He doesn't want that check mark. He jealously desires to give your whole life to Him, including your time and resources. Now don't get me wrong. I'm not up here preaching to get you to give time and money. I'm just telling you what God expects. This is what God expects. This is what He expects according to His Word. Jesus proclaimed in Matthew 16.24, If anyone wishes to come after Me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for My sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? A.W. Pink says this, taking up my cross means a life voluntarily surrendered to God. So it's, we're not coercing anyone. It's a life that voluntarily gives to God and says, I want to give it all. This is my sacrifice of offering to you, Lord. Now I believe that's the thrust of our passage in James. What must I do? What must I do to be saved? What must I do to ensure that I'm truly a kingdom citizen? In Acts 16.31, sorry, in Acts 16.30, in Acts 16, Paul and Silas were in jail at Philippi. And there was a great earthquake, and all the doors of the jail were opened, and everyone's chains were unfastened, including Paul and Silas. So the jailer was about to kill himself when he thought that the prisoners had been loosed. But Paul cried out, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. Now, the hand of God must have been clear to this jailer. Because after he brought them out, he said this, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? Again, I believe that's the thrust of this passage in James. James is concerned about the way that they're living. He's concerned about their pursuit of pleasure, and he wants them to understand what the Christian life really looks like. And so we're going to quickly move through these six keys answering this crucial question. The first, the first key is submit to your king. Submit to your king. James says, submit therefore to God. He uses a, an imperative to begin a string of imperatives. In effect, James is saying, in light of all that I've said up until now, and especially in light of the fact that God gives grace to the humble, this is what I want to tell you. Submit to God. He wants them to understand that the secret of salvation is not a secret after all. We are saved when we submit our entire being uh, to our Creator and Sustainer, Christ Jesus. The imperative verb here is regularly, submit is regularly used of submission to human, human authority. We see that in Romans 13 where Paul writes, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. 
But here in James and in Hebrews 12.9, it is used to, to, to speak of submission to God. Therefore, we must understand that the essence of unbelief is failure to submit to God's law. That's Romans 8.7. And a failure to submit to his and a failure to submit to his righteousness. That's Romans ten three. You see, when we don't believe, when we don't believe in who God is, we don't believe in, in, in the fact that He's created us and we're accountable to Him, we won't submit to Him. Now this idea this idea back in James is that that of a complete and a complete and humble submission. Spurgeon says this. Charles Spurgeon, a man not far from the gates of heaven when he is a man is not far from the gates of heaven when he is fully submissive to the Lord's will. Now this submission is patterned after the example of our Lord Jesus. He said in 1 Peter 2.21, For you've been called according to this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in His mouth. And being reviled, He did not revile in return. While suffering, He uttered no threats, but kept entrusting Himself to Him who judges righteously. And He Himself bore our, sin, bore our sins in His body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by His wounds we are healed. See, God desires for us to submit to Him, to submit our entire lives to Him. He created you. He is jealous for you. He wants you to follow Him. Dwight Moody says this, Let God have your life. He can do more with it than you can. He is the King. He desires for you to bow your knee to Him now. Don't be proud, because God resists the proud. That's what what James said earlier in in verse 6. He gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Don't wait. Submit to Him. Submit to Him now. And secondly, you must join the resistance. Join the resistance. The first point was submit to the King. The second is join the resistance. James says this, Resist the devil and he will flee from you. And earlier in verse 6 we saw that James said that God resists or is opposed to the proud, but now he calls for his listeners to resist the devil, to be in opposition to him, to set themselves against him. In other words, uh, placing uh, ourselves under God's authority means negatively that we firmly refuse to submit to, to the devil's authority. We must understand that Satan's primary purpose is to separate God and man. This has been true since the fall of man due to the temptation of Eve in the garden. Satan's sole intent is to separate man from his maker. But we must resist the devil's purposes. The devil wants you to be proud. He wants you to be proud. He wants you to trust in yourself. He wants you to enjoy the pleasures of this world. He wants you to participate in evil. But he must be resisted. That's James's point. And when we resist him, he will flee from us. 
In other words, whatever power that Satan may have, we can be absolutely certain that God has, we have been given the ability by God to overcome that power. It's not us, right? We must know, we must, we must, we need to understand what that looks like. You've heard of people rebuking the devil, right? We need to be careful with this kind of thinking. I believe that we can resist the devil when we trust in God's promises. Do you get that? The temptation of our Lord recorded in Matthew 4 is the best example of this. In Matthew 4, 1, it says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Here's how, I, here's how Jesus answered him. I rebuke you. That's not how he did it, right? He said, it says in Matthew 4, 4, But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that is proceeds from out of the mouth of God. He said, It is written. He is trusting himself to the Father. He's saying that this is the promises of God. This is how I resist the devil. And he continues to, to tempt Jesus. And, and Jesus could have said, Look, I'm the Son of God. I rebuke you. But he didn't do that. Every time Satan came to him, Jesus resisted him by reminding him of the promises of God. The promises contained in Scripture, the promises that we have, that we have in Scripture. You want to know how to resist the devil? Do what James and Paul say. James wrote earlier, Therefore putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness and humility, receive the word implanted which is able to save your soul. That's how you resist the devil. In Ephesians 6.10, Paul says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day, having done everything to stand firm. Beloved, you must join the resistance against the devil. If you do, he will flee. You can have victory in Christ Jesus. I came from a charismatic background. My father was charismatic. And I, I can remember people saying, the old devil is on my back. In other, in other words, he won't leave me alone. But James gives us this great promise. If we resist the devil, he will flee from us. He is not omnipotent. He can be resisted. He does not have dominion over the believer unless the believer submits to him willingly. Well, in order to be saved, you must submit to your king. You must join the resistance. And thirdly, you must draw near to the Lord. James writes, draw near to the Lord and he will draw near to you. If you'll notice, this one is opposite of the second one. We are to resist the, the devil where he will flee from us and we are to draw near to God. And notice that the devil will flee, but God will draw near to us, right? 
The, the verb translated draw near means to approach. James calls for his readers to approach God. Now this is amazing if you think about it when you consider the awesomeness of God. As, as sinners, think about this, as sinners we're, we dare not to draw close to God, right? As sinners we can't even be in His presence. As sinners we can't be near Him. In Exodus 19, Moses went up on Mount Sinai to meet the Lord who had descended upon it in smoke and fire. And the Lord said to him in verse 21, said to Moses, Go down and warn the people so that they do not break through to the Lord to gaze, and many of them perish. said in verse 24, Go down and come up again, you and Aaron, but do not let the priest and the people break through to come up to the Lord, or He will break forth upon them. In Isaiah 6, Isaiah recounts the same awesomeness of God. Of God. He speaks of, of the, the seraphim, and they, they calling out to one another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the threshold trembled at the voice of Him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. You know what Isaiah said? Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am ruined. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. See, Isaiah not only spoke of the awesomeness of God, but he shows that we need to be consecrated in order to draw near to Him. And yet James is telling us, draw near, right? God has made a way for us to draw near to Him. Even in the Old Testament, in Isaiah 66, it says this in verse 1, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me, and where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things. Thus all these things came into being, says the Lord, or declares the Lord. But listen to this. Verse 2, But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit, and who trembles at my word. This matches what James says in James 4. We can approach God in humility. We can draw near to a holy God in Christ only when we're humble and contrite in spirit. The writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 4. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace and to help in time of need. You see, beloved, because of Christ, we can draw near to the throne of grace. This is, a, this is a revolutionary thought, if you think about it. The God who created this universe and rules it in glory invites us to draw near to Him. In Exodus 34, God allowed Moses to have just a glimpse of His glory and it changed him. In that account, it says that the Lord passed in front of him. This is Exodus 34, 6. The Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren on to the third and fourth generations. David said much the same thing in Psalm 145. The Lord is gracious and, and merciful, 
slow to anger and great in loving kindness. Beloved, in Christ we can draw near to God. He has shown mercy to us. He beckons us, come near and find mercy and grace. But remember, if you choose to go the other way, He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. He says, draw near to Him. In order to be saved, you must draw near to God. And you must, number four, forsake your sin. James writes in 4.8, draw near, um, I'm sorry, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your, your, your heart, you double-minded. James continues this list of imperatives, and this time he gives his intended audience. He says it's the sinners and the double-minded. He tells the sinners to cleanse their hands, then he tells the double-minded to purify their hearts. This washing of hands is, is symbolic of uh, a symbolic ritual indicating the cleansing away of old pure impurities. He commanded them also to purify their hearts. The pure heart then is the symbol for one who is in right relationship with God. In other words, James understands that the problem with humans lies deep within the inner person, deep in their heart. Therefore, the solution is not simply an outward solution, but an inward one. The hands of the sinner needs to be cleansed, but the problem is truly with the heart. That's the point. The heart needs to be made right before the Lord. In order to understand really James's true point, we need to identify the people he's speaking of here. Now, there's a couple of options. One could he's speaking of, of believers who have wandered from the Lord. Now, I think there's, there's some validity in that interpretation because we can all wander and fall into sinful actions, right? Therefore, this could be, could be applied to the struggling Christian. But I believe that in context, that James is speaking to those who are struggling and on the fence, so to speak. As I said last week and earlier today, they could go either way. And it is yet to be seen whether they're Christians or not. The question, according to James, is whether or not they will persevere in Christ. That connects us back to the first chapter, uh, where James speaks of perseverance through trials. James also taught about the double-minded in chapter 1. He warned them of a life of doubt that, that a life of doubt leads to a life that is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. He warns them that they are in, would be unstable in all their ways if they're double-minded. You see, they're drawn by this world, and they're drawn by its pleasures. They're flirting with the world. They're wanting to have things both ways. Now, I believe that... God, that James is calling these people to repentance. In James 5.19, and we've looked at these verses several times, he says, My brethren, if anyone among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he turns a sinner from the error of his ways, that he who, that is, turns a sinner from the error of his way, will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. The picture here then is one who has wandered from the truth. James promises that if they turn back, their soul will be saved from death. If they turn back in repentance, then, we need to understand that they, it is shown or be, will be shown that they're truly Christians. 
But if they don't turn back, then it is shown, it's clear that they're not in Christ. So James then is speaking of, of Christians in need of repentance, I mean, of sinners, that is, in need of re- repentance. Let me say it this way. We don't know if they're believers or not until they turn from their sin. We don't know. All that James is referring to them as is sinners and double-minded. But until they turn, until they repent, we don't know where they truly are. In other words, I don't think the primary meaning here is for the believing or wondering Christian, but for the man, who's, or, man or woman whose eternal destiny is in doubt. Does that make sense? We don't know where they are. Their destiny is in doubt. They are the doubting ones. They are the double-minded. They don't know what they believe. James also refers to them as sinners. Now, that's important. It's important for us to understand. The Scriptures speak of, of sinners in many places, clearly referring to those who are lost and in need of salvation. In Matthew 9.12, it says that when Jesus heard this, He said, It is not the, those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. Because I, this, this is what he says, For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. He didn't come to save... He came, that, he came, that is, to seek and save that which was lost. Or that is lost. In Luke 7, if you want to turn there real quickly. Verse 37. Wait a minute, I may have the wrong. Yeah, Luke 7, verse 37. Verse 36, and and it speaks of one of the Pharisees was requesting Jesus to dine with him. And he entered this Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was, who was a sinner. And when she had learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head, kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this... Man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. The point is, is that, that clearly when, it, when Scripture speaks of a sinner, it's speaking of someone who's lost. Someone who is in need of salvation. And so when James, back in James chapter 4, when he speaks of the sinner, he's speaking of someone who is in need of salvation. He's primarily referring to the lost, those in need of repentance. He tells them to cleanse their impurities. He's calling for them to forsake sin. He, he, he is speaking of an outward change that reflects a truly repentant heart. And as we learned last week, James clearly teaches that we are saved by grace. It is God's grace that saves us, yet we are called to forsake our sin. These truths are not mutually exclusive. 
That makes sense? It's both. He saves us by His grace, but He calls us to forsake our sin. To turn from it, to repent of it. So in order to be saved, you must submit to the King. You must join the resistance. You must draw near to the Lord. You must forsake your sin. Number five, you must embrace your brokenness. You must embrace your brokenness. He says in chapter 4, verse 9, chapter 4, verse 9, he says, Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. I believe that James is continuing to address the double-minded here. I believe he's, he's addressing the sinners in need of repentance. He tells them to be miserable. Uh, this imperative often meant hardship and hard labor. This, this verb was often used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament for, to describe Israel's response to cat- catastrophes. The second imperative, to mourn, was often used in the, pro- in the prophets for the punishment of Israel for breaking their covenant with Yahweh. It is also used in the New Testament for general mourning. The closest parallel to this is Matthew 5, 4, where it says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The, the third imperative, to weep, described Israel's sorrow at Yahweh's punishment. The most vivid example of its use in combination with the imperative to mourn is from 2 Samuel 19, 1, which describes David's weeping and mourning for his dead son Absalom. So James then is calling for them to be miserable, to mourn, and to weep in repentance for their sin. James goes on to say, Let your laughter be turned into mourning, and your joy to gloom. He wants their outward laughter and the outward laughter and joy of, of sinners to be transformed into, into actions that show inner, inner repentance. You see, there's a stark difference between the sinner's outward uh, laughter and seeming joy amid their sinful pursuits. Everybody's heard of party, right? When when people are partying, when there's the the general laughter. What James wants to see is that that laughter be turned to mourning and gloom that that accompanies true repentance. Now, I want to be careful to say that this does not I believe, describe the the Christian life in general. You see, we are to have true joy in Christ. We are not called to constant doom and gloom. What James is speaking of, then, is a mourning over our sin. We must remember, though, that, that in Christ, we have overwhelmingly conquered all sin and distress. In other words, say it this way, The mourning that James is talking about is something that is endured for a time. It's something that accompanies true repentance. But it's not something to be practiced long term. Now, I want to point out that this word for gloom describes the condition condition of one with their eyes cast down. And this should remind us of Luke 18, which gives a picture of what this looks like. In Luke 18, if you want to turn there,
verse 9, he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. So the, these people that he's, that he's speaking to thought that they were righteous. They thought that they had a, they, there was a self-righteousness about them. And therefore, they viewed others with contempt. Now, that's not true repentance, by the way. It's the opposite of true repentance. Verse 10, Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. He's perfect, right? He does everything perfectly. He's a perfect, he's a perfect citizen before God. He's righteous before God. It's all about what He's done. In verse 13, But the tax collector standing some distance away, was, un, was even unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven. That's that da- those downcast eyes, right? He's unwilling to even lift his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. That's what true repentance looks like, beloved. It looks like looking at your sin and understanding the, how horrid it is and turning to God and being unwilling even to look to heaven and mourning over your sin. Have you done that? Have you done that? Have you mourned over your sin? Have you forsaken your sin? Have you embraced your brokenness before a holy God? You must do so. You must. You must forsake sin and you must embrace your brokenness. You can't do so. You can't draw near to the Lord if you don't do so. You can't, you haven't truly submitted to the King, to to the King of the universe if you haven't, if you haven't forsaken your sin, if you haven't embraced your brokenness. And lastly, number six, you must understand true exaltation. You must understand true exaltation. Back in James chapter 4, verse 10, it says, Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and He will exalt you. You see, James starts this passage, or ends this passage, that is, where he started. We are to submit to God and then be humbled before Him. Again, we talked about humility. It is the idea of a true understanding of who we are before a holy God. Do you you know who you are before a holy God? Do you understand who you are before a holy God? Do you believe that you could stand before Him right now? You see, true humility reminds us of what we deserve. We deserve punishment. We deserve wrath. You see, therefore, true humility leads to what? Repentance. 
True humility leads to, to repentance because I understand, I come to understand who I am before a holy God and therefore because of my sin, I, it leads me to repentance knowing that he's, He gives grace, a greater grace according to James, allowing me to come to Him. I'll say it this way. True humility always leads us to the cross where true humility was truly displayed. Did you get that? True humility always leads us to the cross where humility was truly displayed. I said it a little bit differently the second time. In Philippians 2, Paul, Paul writes, being found in, the appearance, in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Philippians 2.9 For this reason also God highly exalted him. Now why did He highly exalt him? Because He humbled Himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, true humility leads to exaltation. And He bestowed on Him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, at the cross, we see true humility and true exaltation. And as we saw earlier in Isaiah 66, God will look to the one who is humble. He will look to the one who is contrite in spirit and to the one who trembles at His word. Beloved, I, I ask you to search your heart. Are you truly hum- humble before the Lord? You, you can't get this wrong. Peter writes, Clothe yourself with humility. 1 Peter 5.5 5. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you at the proper time. Back in Luke 18, we saw the story of that tax collector, right? This is Jesus' final words to the, about this man. Luke 18.14 I tell you, this man, this, this lowly, good-for-nothing tax collector, this sinner, I tell you, this man, is, he went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. That's true exaltation. Now, I can't prove this. I don't know. I, I, J. Vernon McGee, McGee actually said this in his commentary. I can't prove it. You can't disprove it. But I believe that Jesus may have been thinking of Zacchaeus here. Because, because just, a, just a little bit later in Luke 19, we see the story of Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus was what? A tax collector. So wouldn't it make sense that, that Jesus had in his mind as he's telling this story, Zacchaeus. chief tax collector. But in any case, whether that's the case or not, with these two stories, we see the nature of true repentance, right? What did Zacchaeus say in Luke 19? Just look at it. 
Luke 19.1, we see the story, but I want to draw your attention. Verse Verse 7, when they saw it, so when they saw this scene, that Zacchaeus is up in a tree and Jesus calls him down and says, I need to go to stay at your house. And Zacchaeus hurried and came down and received him gladly. When they saw it, they all began to grumble so that there's people watching this that thought that they were righteous. These righteous ones, they began to grumble saying he's gone to be the guest of a man who is what? A sinner. He doesn't deserve you, Lord. He doesn't, deserve, he doesn't deserve you to go there. But guess what? That's what he did. Here, I said this is the story of, of true repentance. Here's what Zacchaeus did. Zacchaeus stopped. So the, they, there must have been a procession going to, the, to, to his house. And Zacchaeus stops in the middle of all this. And he says this. He said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half my possessions I will give to the poor, and if I defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. You know how much he's willing to give? Everything. Everything. That is true repentance. That is submission to the king. That's a man who understands true exaltation. Jesus said to him in verse 9, Today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. That tax collector, that dirty, rotten tax collector, he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has has come to seek and to save that which was lost. We see that true repentance then comes, with true repentance comes exaltation. Beloved, to be saved, you must submit to the King. You must join the resistance. You must draw near to the Lord. You must forsake your sin and embrace your brokenness. And you must understand true exaltation. J.I. Packer says this, God has spoken to man and the Bible is His Word. Given to us to make us wise unto salvation. Godliness means responding to God's revelation in trust and obedience, faith and worship, prayer and praise, submission and service. Life must be seen and lived in light of God's Word. This and nothing else is true religion. End quote. Beloved, God has called you to submit to Him. He's called you to submit. He's called you to flee this wicked world. Don't be like Lot's wife, right? Don't look back. Don't look back. Come to the throne of grace where you will find a merciful king. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning again, or this early afternoon, that is. Lord, I pray and ask Lord, I know that there, there are people here that don't know you. I know that there are those who have not submitted to you. They have not drawn near. They have not forsaken their sin. They have not embraced their brokenness. They don't understand true exaltation. Father, I pray that you would turn their hearts to you. 
Father, I know that there are those in, in this city who don't know You, who don't understand this message. Lord, I pray that we would go and share this message with others. Lord, we possess the greatest news ever. The greatest news ever. There was an atheist that said, if I believed what you believe, I would go do at, to any length to share that message. Why are we not doing that? Why are we not, my Lord? We thank you this morning that you've saved those who you've saved. Father, may we exalt you. May we worship you. In Christ's name, amen.